So I think if you're a manager or a leader, there's a way to be having a conversation with the people that you manage and you lead to say, knowing what we need to achieve here, how do I help you find work, a goal that is thrilling, important, daunting, so that you find meaning in the work that you do or as much meaning as you can, that you're, you find your learning edge so that you're continuing to grow and evolve in the role that you're in at the moment, and that we know that the work you're doing actually serves the organization. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to Unleashed, the fastest hour on the internet, where every episode we feature a best-selling author or world-renowned thought leader, all in the name of helping you elevate your leadership impact. I'm your host, Jeff Tetz, and I want to thank our season sponsor, PowerEd. PowerEd is an award-winning division of Athabasca University who partners with organizations looking for impactful online learning solutions. Their on-demand online offerings include leadership, project management, artificial intelligence ethics, digital transformation, embracing allyship and inclusion, and digital wellness. Check out the team from Athabasca University at athabascau.ca. My guest today is Michael Bungay-Stanier. Michael helps people be a force for change. He's best known for his book, The Coaching Habit, which has sold close to a million copies and has thousands of five-star reviews online. His latest book, How to Begin, gives people a framework for doing something that matters. He founded Box of Crayons, a learning and development company that helps organizations move from advice-driven to curiosity-led. They've trained hundreds of thousands of managers to be more coach-like and their clients range from Microsoft to Gucci. He left Australia about 30 years ago to be a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford University, where his only significant achievement was falling in love with a Canadian. How about that? Which is why he now lives in Toronto, having spent time in London and Boston. Balancing out these moments of success, he was banned from his high school graduation for the balloon incident. Want to find out what that's all about. And he was sued by one of his law school professors for defamation. And his first published piece of writing was a Harlequin Romance-esque story involving a misdelivered letter called The Mail Delivery. Sounds very, very fascinating. Michael, welcome to the show. Oh, look, I'm stoked to be here. Thank you for having me, Jeff. That's awesome. I wish everybody felt that way. Uh, there's, so there's a lot, uh, there is a lot of, uh, of, uh, of really interesting things in your bio that I would love to unpack. I mean, number one, to, to the best of my uh, knowledge, we have never had a Rhodes Scholar on the program before. But in amongst all of that stuff, I am just dying to know, what is the balloon incident that got you... Uh, Got you expelled or or uh, or yeah. uh, and from my, my graduation, graduation ceremony. You know, it, it, it's probably better if it's if it remains mysterious because if when I explain it, it's kind of you can see that I have a, a a tendency towards marketing and maybe a little bit of hyperbole. But basically, the 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 short version of the story is graduating high school, and it's my headmaster's last year after 26 years of being a headmaster or some ridiculously long amount of time. And the class that had graduated before us the year before had caused chaos. They'd put glue in the locks. They brought in a flock of sheep to, to graze on the main quadrangle of the school. They, you know, they, they wrote rude things and weed killer on the main playing oval field thing. 
And so there was this kind of clampdown, which is like no monkey business during this headmaster's last year. You have to, you know, to walk off stage demurely and politely. I was like, you know, I understand I don't want to be arrested for property damage, but come on, you can't do anything. So with a, a small group of friends, uh, we decided to go and uh, put helium-filled balloons in the chapel. I went to a Church of England uh, boys' school. So we did, and there's a conical roof. And so we're just going to put balloons in the roof of the chapel. That was it. I mean, it is like the most the most calm, the most banal, the least threatening end of year stunt ever pulled out on the history of the planet. But it was enough to uh, provoke the anger of the administration. So we got caught and myself and a few other people got banned from attending our graduation. So it goes. Unbelievable. So, I mean, there's a couple of takeaways from that story for me, at least, is uh, number one, there are a group of people that need to lighten up. And I think uh, the second one is that you have somehow found a way to turn uh, to turn these unique personality traits into a very productively uh, uh, sort of harnessed uh, capacity. So good for you. The, the real takeaway, Jeff, is this. Don't get caught. <laughs> so much better <laughs> when it doesn't get caught. Yeah, absolutely. Don't get caught. There we go. If you're watching at home, kids, uh, you know, don't get caught. That's I've added, I've added value already to this whole conversation. Yep, that's right. So you have written this wonderful book, How to Begin, which is, which is uh, really a how-to roadmap for people to, to start setting big, meaningful goals. And I got to ask yeah. you, like, I can appreciate how much effort and time and thought that goes into writing a book. What made this particular topic such a compelling piece for you to write? Well, honestly, Jeff, when I started writing this book, I didn't think this was the book I was writing. And you probably heard this from other authors as well. <laughs> like I started writing something and a completely different book ended up showing up. I thought I was trying to dig deeper into what does it take to change your behavior? Because all of us who are in organizations or leading organizations or in the world of growth and personal development, it boils down to how will you act differently? You want your culture to be different in your company, you need to act differently. You need to get other people to act differently. If you want to grow into the next best version of who you are, you need to act differently. And of course, the challenge is changing your behavior is, is very difficult. I mean, there's a reason James Clear's Atomic Habits has sold 9 bazillion copies is that it offers a bit of a guide in terms of how you change your behavior. But I was thinking habits are all well and good. And, you know, I wrote a book called The Coaching Habits, so I'm a fan of habits. But I thought there's a deeper there's a deeper thing around what's required to change behavior. It can't just be about building habits. So I, I wrote a book, or at least a first draft of a first half of a book, and I sent it to some friends. And universally, they all wrote back going, Michael, this is a terrible book. I mean, it's hopeless. <laughs> I've read the first 60 pages. It makes no sense whatsoever. Now, as a writer, you know that your first draft is always going to be a bit disappointing, a bit crap. But I didn't realize it was going to be quite that this disappointing, <laughs> quite this crappy. So reading through the, the smoking remains of this first draft, I found one phrase that I really liked. We unlock our greatness by working on the hard things. We unlock our greatness by working on the hard things. And I realized that that had been true for me, that when I looked at my own kind of moments of steep growth and increasing my courage and my capacity and my confidence and my self-sufficiency and all of that good stuff. 
it was really when I met a challenge I cared about, but which stretched me and pushed me and provoked me. And one that I persevered with, and I kind of got to some sort of conclusion with. So I was thinking, if it's true for me, it's probably true for other people as well, which is, it is so easy, particularly as I think you get a little older, to kind of slide into the comfortable groove of your life. And how do you maintain ambition for yourself, but also for the world? How do you make the world a better place? How do you continue to be hungry and continue to grow? And I wrote this book for those people who are at those crossroads, whether it's you know, you're at leading a company and you want it to change, whether you're about to retire and you're wondering what that looks like, whether you're an empty nester, whether you're having a 35-year-old midlife crisis and you don't want to buy a red car, you know, if you're up to one of those moments of change, what do you do with that? And how to begin is an invitation to think about setting a worthy goal. And you talk about worthy goal. Now, I think maybe having a clear definition of what is a worthy goal would, would be a helpful starting point, Michael. Yeah. Well, look, everybody's heard of goals. And about 99.3% of the population have heard of SMART goals. If, if there's one word we've all heard of it associated with goals, it's SMART. And when I, when I realized I was writing a book about ambition and goal setting, to my surprise, I was like, okay, so what do I know about SMART goals? And the first thing is I couldn't actually remember what SMART stood for. You know, S-M-A-R-T, we know it's an acronym, but it turns out nobody is quite sure what they all stand for. We've all got a guess, a reasonable stab at the dark, but we're not it's like, is that M, is it meaningful or measurable? You know, is the R, is it relevant or is it real? I mean, what, what is it? And I realized that beyond the fact that I couldn't actually remember what SMART stood for in terms of defining a good goal, when I did look up the definition, I realized almost all of those words were about shrinking it and containing it and making it neat and tidy. And it just occurred to me that, you know, if, if it's the wrong goal, it doesn't matter how smart you make it, it's still the wrong goal. It's like, you know, you may choose to cut this out. <laughs> it's like, it's like polishing a turd. It doesn't matter how great the goal is, uh, how smart, uh, doesn't matter how worthy it is or how smart it is if it's the wrong goal. So I was like, how do you, set a goal that matters? How do you know that it has that attribute? So for me, a worthy goal is made up of three competing forces. The first is it needs to be thrilling. In other words, it lights you up, it gets you excited, it means something to you, it makes you rub your hands and go, that would be pretty cool. I'd like to take that on. I can feel, I can feel the incentive around that. But I don't want it just to be thrilling because otherwise it's a little self-indulgent. I also want it to be important. And by important, I mean, gives more to the world than it takes or contributes to your organization's strategy rather than just focused on a narrow, a, a smaller win. It, it speaks to the bigger picture and it gets you out beyond just what you want into what's your biggest and best contribution. And so, Jeff, we've already got a tension between thrilling and important because there's a kind of competing force mm -hmm. there. And then yeah. the third element of three is daunting. You know, is this a goal that stretches you and grows you and pushes you and provokes you and challenges you? Because if it's just thrilling and important, but not daunting, well, you're going to plateau. And even if you're doing work that is important stuff, and you probably are, you're no longer growing and evolving as a human being. And that's a key part of the equation. Yeah. So it sounds like a personal BHAG a little bit. 
Yeah, BHAGs, you know, if you don't know smart goals, you probably heard of BHAGs. But when you look at Jim Collins's work and BHAG, big, hairy, audacious goal, the context that is mostly used in is as an organization. It's as an organization, what's our BHAG? What's our big thing that we're going to build a strategy around to try and deliver against? And this, I guess, is more like that personal BHAG, which is like, okay, so how do you make something that's thrilling and important and daunting for you? And why I love that you've made that connection is just like as an organization, you can only have one or two BHAGs, otherwise it becomes relevant to many. So too with you personally, you know, when you're thinking about your worthy goal, you've got space for one or two, you don't have space for 10 or 12. Yes. Yeah, no, that, that makes good sense. Now, everybody is at different stages and phases of their lives. Is, is setting a worthy goal, is this something that everybody should be concerned with? Or, or is this for a certain segment of people that are at certain stages or phases of their lives? I think it's probably most relevant for those people who feel that there is a little bit of a crossroads, who feel that this is a chance for them to figure out what they want to do with their lives. And there are kind of key moments in our lives where we, we face that existential question. You know, one I think is probably in your early 20s. You know, for many of us, we've just finished university. And we're like, and you know, the, the machine of capitalism beckons and we're like, what am I doing? Am I, am I having a career? Am I doing that thing? Or am I doing something else? So it might work there. Then there's that moment when you're in your kind of mid thirties where you're like, I've been working really hard for 10 years. I've climbed this particular mountain. Was this the right mountain? <laughs> you know, there's a reason why 35 or thereabouts is uh, the so-called midlife crisis. Um, there's a poet once who said, when a man really means everybody, but when a man turns 35, he realizes his life isn't working. So that moment. And then I think there is that moment in your kind of fifties where you might be coming to the end of a successful career and you're thinking to yourself, well, look, my time here is about done, but I've got a, I've got another good 20 years left. I mean, I may be thinking of retiring, but I'm not wanting to be retired. What am I going to do with that time? Or sometimes, and this is often parallel, when you become an empty nester, like your kids are gone and you're like, okay, so now raising kids isn't job number one. Well, now what? <laughs> How's this going to work? So I think that you, I mean, it'd be great for people to have a worthy goal all the time because it creates direction and impact and meaning in your life. But I think there are times where you feel the hunger for it particularly. And I think those three or four opportunities are those moments. So it really sounds like it is for everyone. And you're, you're reminding me of uh, the, one of the latest stats I saw on people exiting the workforce. There's been, there's been in the neighborhood of 300,000 Canadians that have left the workforce in the last 12 months. And that's up 30% year over year. And they're leaving the workforce at younger ages. And right. when, when I see those statistics, Michael, I always worry about stagnation. And uh, so you right. made a very, the, the, the link to what you've done here and living a life, an exhilarated life of meaning, of purpose, of growth, and the right kind of discomfort, I can see how that would be so helpful to that, to that population right. as well. And yeah. I think, I think some, a good percentage of those people who are leaving are looking at what they're doing with their lives and they're going, what am I doing? <laughs> I've just gone through COVID. It's made me stop and think and go, you know, what type of life do I actually want? And they're coming to the conclusion that the life they've just been living isn't that life. 
Now, it takes a whole lot of courage to walk away from something that's not working, but you also want to have something that you're walking towards because otherwise you can feel a little lost. So I'm hoping that some ideas in the book might be a tool for some of those people for sure. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, whether you're 20 years old listening to this or you're in, uh, in your mid-80s or somewhere in between, let's give people a bit of a roadmap now, Michael, and some how-tos. Right. And, and just as an aside, I love the way that you write. I mean, you, you write, first of all, you write with a lot of candor and humility about your own struggles and your own uh, sort of uh, uh, challenges and things that you have overcome in your own life. And then you just have such simple steps that people can start applying right away. And that's just, I think, music uh, to my ears. So you've, you've broken this down kind of into three main categories. So there's, there's the, the, the setting yeah. of the worthy goal, there's the committing to the goal, and then there's this thing you call crossing the threshold. So I wonder if we could just <laughs> start right. maybe on, maybe elaborate a bit on what does it mean to, uh, to identify and set a worthy goal? Right. So if you've gone, you know what, actually, <laughs> worthy goal or some sort of owning ambition for myself in the world, that might be a good thing to do. Well, then you've got to go find your worthy goal. And of course, that's quite intimidating for lots of people. Me too. I'm like, what am I going to do? Where am I going to find something that's thrilling and important and daunting? So there's a process of looking around for that. And one of the things that I would give full permission on is to realize that a worthy goal can play at any scale. Sometimes when you hear the sort of worthy goal and being ambitious for yourself in the world, you kind of go, well, I don't know, I'm not Elon Musk trying to send ships to Mars and I'm not Gandhi liberating India from the British Empire and I'm not, you know, you're not playing in that kind of global scale. And, you know, it's like nobody is, you know, five people in the world are playing at that scale and four of them are deluded. Um, so it's to realize that you can be articulating your goal at quite an intimate level. It might be your team, or it might be your family, or it might be your neighborhood, or it might be your business unit, or it might be your company, or it might be your country, or it might be a kind of global movement, or it might be organizations and how they meet the world and kind of the uh, interface between organization strategy and service to the community. You can go from small to large, but you're looking at trying to find something that is thrilling and important and daunting. Sometimes it's a project that you want to get done. I want to start or launch or write or create or begin something. Sometimes a worthy goal can be more relationship-based. I want to be a better parent, child, boss, uh, consultant, something about how you show up and the relationships you have. Sometimes a worthy goal can be more about your own identity. Like for me at the moment, my worthy goal is to attempt to become a writer. Now, I know it's a bit weird because I'm like, I've got all these books that I've already written, but to me, that makes me an author. An author is about the output. I've written books, therefore I'm an author. A writer is an identity thing. It's like I identify myself as a writer. I write and that's the main thing I do. And at the moment, that's not the main thing I do. So for me, I'm in that third level, which is a worthy goal is how do I become a committed writer? Now, once you've got a kind of general area where you might look for your worthy goal, and the key thing to remember about this part of the process is it's going to take you some time and it's going to take you a few drafts to get towards your final worthy goal. Whatever you write down first, your first guess, it is, it's, like, it's like the book that I was telling you I was writing. It's going to be a bit of a crappy first draft. 
And that is brilliant. I mean, it's a paradox, but the best place to start is with a crappy first draft. But you have to know that it's a crappy first draft. It's like, it's, it's, it takes you part the way there, but you're not there yet. And then there's a process of tightening this up, kind of applying some tests against it, poking it, trying to find the, shop, the soft spots of it, because you want to end up having drafted a worthy goal. That really feels compelling because, you know, inherent in the definition is this is a goal that's going to be daunting for you. And when you've got anything that's daunting, there's one part of your brain that goes, stop doing it, <laughs> give up, <laughs> don't bother with the worthy goal. So you need to find a way of drafting a worthy goal that has enough internal motivation and external motivation to keep pulling and pushing you along when times get hard. Got it. So how do you know when you've kind of hit that eureka moment and, and, you've, and you've sort of, you've, you've nailed it, you've got it? I'm, I, I mean, it'd be so good, wouldn't it? If there was a choir of angels that sung when you, when you hit that eureka moment or you're like, you know, somebody hits the golden button and kind of gold confetti floats down and you're like, oh, okay, I seem to, this is it. I've, I've hit my final perfect draft. And the answer is you don't know really. I mean, somebody once said books are never finished, they're abandoned. And they get abandoned at the point where the author goes, I think this is as good as I can make it. And any more work on this, the incremental gains are so small. But here's a way of testing. Um, and this is what I do with all of the worthy goals that I set myself. And I teach this in the book as well. Once you go through two or three drafts of a worthy goal, and you're saying, you know, this is pretty good. I'm feeling pretty happy with this. It's got a degree of thrilling, important and daunting that I like. What you do is you then measure it. You, you score it and you score each of the three attributes out of seven. The twist is you can't give your worthy goal three sevens. You can give it two sevens, but you have to have at least one number that's not a seven in that mix. And then you add your numbers up. So that's going to give you a score somewhere between three and 20 out of 21. And what that does is it makes you just a little more objective about the worthy goal that you've written down. And it helps you see where your worthy goal might be a bit soft in either thrilling or important or daunting. My Excellent. rule of thumb is that if you get to it, if you get your worthy goal at 18 or more, you've probably got something that's really pretty robust and pretty solid. If you're less than 18, it might mean that there's a little bit more work to do to, to start refining the worthy goal. Excellent. I like that you've brought some uh, objectivity to something so subjective or that something can be so subjective. Yeah. And then how, so step, step one, of course, is setting the worthy goal. Now, how long should step one take? Or like, are we talking days, weeks, months? Like what's, what's been your experience as you've been using this? Well, you know, somebody once said that chess is a game that takes minutes to learn and a lifetime to master. Um, I don't think it's going to take you a lifetime to master drafting your worthy goal, but to me, you can make some really good progress quickly. Like when I teach this, I take people through the process of writing three drafts of a worthy goal within an hour. And within an hour, a, a solid percentage of those people have a worthy goal that they would self-score at 18 or higher out of 21. So it doesn't have to take a lot of time. And I would say that it there's value in marinating on that worthy goal, 
on sitting with it a little bit on making some doing some kind of deep work on it and trying to take it to a certain point and then putting it away for a day or two and then coming back to it and looking at it with fresh eyes because yeah there is a moment in my experience where you 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 get a worthy goal to a point where you're like this is pretty good <laughs> i like this i can i can feel excited about getting going on this even though it's daunting even though i don't know how to i i, know, I can figure out how to start this but i don't know how to finish it yet even though that's the case, I feel like this would be something I'd be really happy to put time and effort and attention and and risk towards. Yeah, yeah, I, I like that. I, a question that comes to mind as I'm hearing you talk about this worthy goal process, how, how often do you run into conflict either with yourself or, or, or the people that you're coaching through this process where they're not completely sure whether they're going after a goal that's meaningful for them or a goal that might be an expectation somebody else has of them? Oh, that's such a great question. I mean, that's, that, that is spot on. One of, the, one of the reasons why we make thrilling um, one of the three criteria, and we, and we call it thrilling, <laughs> is that it, it kind of is about, does it truly light you up? Not, do you feel obliged to do that? Because we often feel obliged to do things that are, you might call important. You know, they're like, this is important. And, you know, somebody like you at this stage of your life doing this thing, we really should be doing this by now. So it's kind of sense of obligation or expectation that come from other people. And for sure, a big part of this process is for you to be thinking to yourself, does this, do I care about this? Am I excited about this? Does this have a kind of a zestiness to it that would actually light me up? Or am I project, am I kind of trying to make other people happy? And I love that you're pointing to this, Jeff, because that dilemma, which is like, am I trying to make other people happy, is part of what, why the second section is so important, which is the section where you decide whether you're ready to commit to your worthy goal or not. Yes, and great segue. So let's talk about that. So we've set the worthy goal. We're ready to, to make this commitment, the second step. What does commitment, what does commitment look like? Well, here's the reason I wrote this section, because the, the more common sense or expected thing to do is once you've written a worthy goal, just crack on with it. I mean, start, <laughs> you know, it's like get going, stop procrastinating. You spend a bunch of time writing this thing out, just get going on it. And I think we often rush into action a little too quickly because we haven't sat with the consequence of truly saying yes to this particular worthy goal. You know, Jeff, if people know me at all, they know me by this book, The Coaching Habit, which I wrote five or six years ago, and that's gone on to sell a, a bunch. And one of the questions, one of the seven questions I talk about in The Coaching Habit is the strategic question. If you're saying yes to this, what must you say no to? And this section of the book really has us sit with that question, where you're like, if you're going to say yes to this worthy goal, what are the consequences of that? You know, what happens? if you say a true yes to this, because it's not a true yes unless you start articulating what the no's are required. And when you take on a worthy goal, things change. When you take on a worthy goal, you're shifting, you're shifting first of all, your own expectations of yourself. So what you now need to say no to about who you are and what you do and how you show up and what you prioritize and what you spend time on and what you don't spend time on 
how do you say no to some of that current behavior so that you can say a, a real yes to what it means to take on your worthy goal? But it's also saying no to other people and other people's expectations of you. And other people are like, you know what? We understand you. You're predictable. <laughs> we know how you spend your life. When you're taking on a worthy goal and you're saying, I'm going to do this thing that's thrilling, important, and daunting, you're kind of stepping into the next version of who you are. I mean, right back when we started this conversation, Jeff, I was like, we unlock our greatness by working on the hard things. So you said yes to a worthy goal, you're, you're unlocking greatness. And that means you're going to be different. This is not present you. This is future you that's taking on your worthy goal. So you need to be figuring out, so how's, how's this going to annoy other people? How's this going to disrupt how they think I, what I do and who I am and how I show up and what I can be relied on? And you need to kind of weigh up, the, as I say in the book, the prizes and punishments of you saying yes to doing a worthy goal. And if the prizes of saying yes outweigh the punishments of saying yes, because there is a price you and others will pay for taking on the worthy goal, then you've got the wind in your sails. Then you're ready to think about, well, what does it take to actually get going on a worthy goal? Got it. I'm, I'm, I'm feeling how that process would, would really like psychologically commit you to what you're about to embark on. Now, the other thing I'm envisioning as you do this, Michael, you say like you're going to be disappointing people around you. And so it means you're going to have to say no to a lot of people and a lot of requests. So how important then is it to communicate this to your circle, what your worthy goal is, so they're a little bit more empathetic to your plight? Well, I, I would start off by saying, as a key insight, and we talk about, we'll talk about this more in a second, I suspect, when we talk about what does it take to cross the threshold? One of yeah. the key insights about crossing the threshold is don't travel alone. It's really yeah. hard to do this by yourself. And yeah. you wanna have a cluster of, you could call it people, but in the book, I talk about four different types of energies that you can have around you to help you navigate this tricky bit. You know, the four different archetypes, different roles that people can play. One is a kind of a warrior archetype. It's like, I'm fierce. I've got boundaries. I'm willing to push back. I'm not willing to be pushed around. There's that kind of like that energy that comes to it. The second archetype is that of the healer, which is like, okay, this is where you can go and be a mess and be confused and get some R and R and be looked after and kind of it's got a very different, softer, gentler energy than the kind of the warrior energy. The third energy is the uh, the wizard or the teacher energy. Like where, where do you go to learn the stuff that you don't yet know? And then the fourth and final energy um, is the the visionary or the ruler energy. And that's all about ambition and kind of keeping your eye on the horizon and having a degree of ruthlessness that you might need to kind of keep going when times get tough. And you may need a different mix of those different energies to navigate the people and the decisions and the, the, the first steps of this journey. But I think it's, you know, when you, when you ask the question, so how important is it to communicate to your circle that this is what you're up to? You know, I, I can imagine that there are some people in some people's circles where you're like, I don't want to tell you what I'm up to because you'll kind of poo-poo it a bit and you'll be a bit of a downer around it. Um, you'll give me a whole bunch of arguments about why I shouldn't be taking it on. So 
I think most of the thing to do is say, how do I get the right people behind me? Because this is a, this is a journey that's not insignificant. This, this is yeah, that, that, really that's an important and daunting. Yeah, well, I love those archetypes because it gives you such a simple uh, sort of a blank, uh, like a, a blank org chart of who you need to have, uh, who you need to have. I, I, I like the loving critic sort of uh, concept right. of having surrounding yourself with like, yeah. loving critics, but but you've done a good job of identifying there's different kinds of uh, loving critics, I suppose, that you can add to your, to your all-star team. Yeah. You know, my wife is my classic loving critic. Like when I give her one of my books to read, one of my early drafts, it honestly, it feels like she takes a red pen and plunges it repeatedly through my heart. I mean, it's quite a brutal experience often. And she is just 100% on my side. You know, she is really trying to make this book worth it and me worth it and the book better and me better. So she's a great champion to have. I've also had people who I would call unloving critics in my life and they're not in my life anymore because actually that criticism didn't serve me as well. Yeah, no, well, uh, well said. So I want to stick on this committing piece uh, for, for a little bit longer, Michael. And there, yeah. were, there, was something, uh, there was something that caught my attention that you call false starts. What is a false yeah. start? And then I was kind of surprised uh, the emphasis on why it's important to uh, give them some attention before you, uh, before you actually start embarking on taking action. Sometimes when we're taking on a worthy goal, it feels like this is a brand new idea. We've never done anything like this before. And so it is, you're, you're navigating on a blank sheet of paper. It's like, this is all a mystery and I'm, I'm experiencing it for the first time. What I realized was true for me and true for other people as well, is that often a worthy goal that we come back to and that we define as important, it's often something that we've tried one way or another before. We've found it and we may not, it might not have been the right time or we may not have quite articulated it properly or we may have had circumstances conspire against us and we made a tiny bit of progress or maybe not much progress at all, but we kind of got abandoned along the way. And I think it's just worth learning from our, our history and our own experience and our own mistakes. And, you know, if this is the very first time you've considered a worthy goal like this ever, well, then great. You get to skip this exercise. There's nothing here to learn for you. But if you're me, I can often look at this and I go, oh, yeah, <laughs> so I've tried this before and it's worked twice and it hasn't worked 11 times. So what do I learn from that? What, what are the predictable mistakes I'm going to make? What are the predictable ways I'm going to collude against myself? What are the predictable ways I'm going to get in my own way to make progress on this? So I'm just trying to get a little bit smarter and not totally forget and fail to learn from my past. Yeah, that's that's excellent. I I, I liken that to climbing a mountain where let's not take the same path twice if uh, if it ran into a dead end. So that's uh, that's right. helpful advice. That, the other the other thing I thought was really clever when it comes to committing, you you uh, you refer to them as mosquitoes. What what is the importance of mosquitoes in setting a worthy goal? I love the idea, uh, the metaphor of mosquitoes. I don't love mosquitoes, but I love the metaphor of mosquitoes because they're annoying, they're frustrating, they suck blood in, in small ways. They're probably not going to be fatal, but they are certainly a distraction to the task at hand. I mean, if you ever sat out on a 
summer night in Canada. <laughs> As an Australian arriving in Canada, I'm like, we have our own insects in Australia. But holy cow, you know, somewhere in some parts of Canada, you got mosquitoes, you've got horse flies, you've got moose flies. You've, I mean, there's just these enormous blood-sucking insects everywhere. Um, and in the context of kind of figuring out, are you committed to this and understanding kind of what the mosquitoes are, it's kind of going, what are the stumbles I've made in the past? And also, what are the little things that might get in the way of me actually taking this on? What are the little distractions that might be there for you? So once again, as you figure out what it means to commit to a worthy goal, part of what you're figuring out is what's reality? What's reality about my past? What's reality about where I am in the moment and to what extent I can commit to this? What's reality about what I need to say no to so I can say a genuine yes to this? You know, you go right back to Viktor Frankl and Man's Search for Meaning. And he's like, the way you survive the hard things is you take a good look at what reality is. You don't be optimistic about it. You don't be pessimistic about the short term. But you think to yourself, this is reality. And I'm optimistic I'm going to get to my long-term objective. And we're trying to do a similar thing in a not quite as gruesome a scale as being in a prisoner of war camp, um, as, as was true with Viktor Frankl. But it's like... What does it take to be truly aware of the reality of what it means to commit to this? And if I can see reality, am I up for the adventure or not? Got it. And so for some context, what are some mosquitoes that have popped up for you in your pursuit of becoming a writer? You know, I, the, so much of it is <laughs> I quite like the status quo of not being a writer. So this is the, what's interesting for me to battle, which is like, on the one hand, I have this vision of what it would mean to be a writer. And it's like, you know, I, I wake up and I, and I read books. I'm surrounded by books. They're on my floor down here. And I'm surrounded by books. And I'm like about 400 books behind <laughs> where I want to be in terms of the books I'm reading. But in my writing things, I write up, I read. So I'm reading inspiration. I've got good stuff incoming. And then I write a certain amount of words every day. And when I finish a book, I just start the next book the next day. So there's a way that writing is centered around my life. Now, you know, one of the mosquitoes right now is my inbox. Like I get, a, I'm pulled to sort out the emails that are in my inbox. And even though I'm like, you know, when I die, I don't particularly want to have on my tombstone, Michael managed his inbox in a fairly good way some of the time. That, that's not that aspirational for me. I'd much rather something like Michael was a good writer on my, my tombstone when the time comes. Um, nonetheless, I've got a certain amount of short-term adrenaline rush and kind of sense of progress and busyness that pulls me to my inbox. So I know I'm not the only one who finds their inbox a little too compelling. Yeah, no, I, yeah, I think most people can identify with that for sure. So you, you've taken us through the first two steps then. So step one, setting yeah. a worthy goal. The second step is committing to that worthy goal. Now the third step is what you call crossing the threshold. What does that look like? You know, once you have your worthy goal, one of the, the places that some people stop is right now. They're like, I've defined the worthy goal. It's too scary to go on. <laughs> It's too thrilling, it's too important, it's too daunting. And I can't get people to the end point of their worthy goal. 
it's too, their, their goals are too subtle and complex and too personal for me to say, here's the seven step plan to execute any goal. I'm trying to get you to make progress and get started on your worthy goal. Hence the name of the book, How to Begin. So I'm going, look, if I can get two or three steps along the path, then I'm going to celebrate that as a success. The challenge is it's actually not straightforward to start making progress on your worthy goal. I mean, it would be great if it was like a Google map. You know, you're like, okay, here's where I am now. Here's my destination, my worthy goal destination. And, you know, and the AI, the algorithm tells you it's like, okay, it's a 18 minute journey or 22 minutes if you stop off at coffee here. And it'd be, it'd be lovely if it was that straightforward. But to me, starting a worthy goal, because this is mostly unknown territory for you. Somebody once said the, the best def definition of daunting they had was, you kind of know how to start it, but you don't really know how to finish it. So when you're navigating a worthy goal, I think of it like going uh, hiking. You know, you've got a map, you've got a compass, and you can't, you think the big mountain across the mist covered valley is your destination. That's kind of your articulated worthy goal, but you're not entirely sure. And you're not entirely sure the best path to get there. So you need to navigate to the next milestone and then kind of reorient and figure out the path from there and then navigate to the next milestone after that. And it's by a, it's a, it's a non-linear journey. You're moving towards where you might go. And the truth is your worthy goal might even evolve and change as you begin the journey. And as you get further into what the reality of, of trying to make this happen is. So crossing the threshold is about getting a little bit of momentum up, understanding that the navigation of this is going to be happening in small bursts as you make progress and trying to bring, as we've already talked about, trying to bring some of the best people with you. So you're not traveling alone. Got you. So, so taking some small steps, and I know you've talked a little bit about another part was, was uh, not traveling alone. And there's this other piece too that you talk about remembering your best self. So uh, why, I know, how does that, I guess, how is that helpful as you start to cross the threshold? Well, you're taking on a worthy goal that is thrilling, important, and daunting. So you are stepping out to the edge of who you are, what you know, what you've experienced and what technical skills you have, you will be put under stress by taking on a worthy goal. It's not a stress-free experience. It's worth it because it's thrilling and important and daunting, but it's also going to stretch you and provoke you and challenge you and make it hard for you. And under stress, we shrink. Under stress, we retreat. You know, there's... Um, that saying, the quote, I'm, nobody can quite tell me where this quote comes from, maybe the American SAS, maybe somewhere else, but it's like, we don't rise to the occasion, we shrink to our level of training, or our level of systems, depending on which quote yeah, you read. Yeah, I heard that. And I'm trying to have me and others figure out, under stress, what, what do I retreat to? <laughs> What's my base level of performance? And I just know that there will be times when I'm doing my worthy goal where I'm doing all the stuff that is suboptimal. I'm not showing up the way I want to. I'm grumpy. I'm not as good with people as I do. I'm not as productive as I want to be. And in the book, I talk about an exercise that allows you to remember what your best self is and allows you to navigate a path back to being your best self because you're more likely to make progress 
and you're more likely to stay optimistic and you're more likely to keep going when times are hard. If it's the best version of you who's showing up to do this rather than the, the slightly compromised version of you. Yes, that's helpful. That's really helpful. Now I'm imagining as you embark now, uh, you cross the threshold, you're embarking on this, this worthy goal, uh, you're going to read. You're going to reach all kinds of of crossroads where you're questioning if you're doing the right thing. And I think conventionally, I, I've often thought that a lot of people give up just moments before breakthrough. But my my thinking has changed on that in recent years, Michael. And and I and I think it's more nuanced than I used to view it. In your ex, right. in your experience, like how does a person determine if it, if it's a goal they should keep pursuing and struggling through that adversity versus Maybe it's time to quit and pick a new worthy goal. Right. Yeah, because I, 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 I agree with you. And I love that you're bringing this forward, which is, you know, it's kind of the, the, the crush it mentality that you're like, keep going, even when it's impossible, keep pushing through. You're, you're one minute away from success. And I'm like, sometimes you're just, you're just digging the wrong hole. And you need to figure out whether you should stop digging this hole or not. You're not, you're not always giving up too soon. Often you're giving up too late because you should have stopped doing this a while ago. So I would say, first of all, it's helpful to know whether you have a bias towards giving up too soon or giving up too, too late. Um, because you've probably got a pattern where you do one or the other. It, for me, I would say that I probably keep going a little too soon with a bunch of things. Like, you know what? It's looking terrible, but why don't I just give it another two weeks <laughs> and see how it goes? And then when I do stop it, I was like, I could have probably given this up a month ago or two months ago and stopped and moved on to something else. But there are some other people who are like, I, I quit really easily. Anytime it gets hard, I throw up my hands and I'm like, oh, too hard. And I move on to the next thing and you've got a thousand little steps. That's why that exercise on false starts can be so helpful for people. Um, I think what I would have learned from this is it's really hard to figure this out by yourself. This is why this idea of don't travel alone can be so important. It's like go and calibrate with other people and try and figure out their point of view on it and their perspective and whether they have any guidance or any advice. Because you're only ever taking your best guess. It's really objectively obvious whether you should give up or not, because with a worthy goal, you know, you're, you're stepping into a degree of uncertainty and complexity where success isn't guaranteed and is not always clear. So I'll say as a final point, because this is such a good question, Jeff. First of all, it's helpful to work towards small wins along the way. So you're like, okay, I'm rather than trying to go for the big worthy goal that I'm, I'm, I'm defining as success for the next six weeks, my goal is to write a first draft or write half a first draft or write three chapters. So I'm like celebrating a small win rather than defining it as all or nothing against the big win. And then I think there's this idea of, of bringing in your trusted advisors and kind of going, it is hard at the moment. I don't know, should I be giving this up or should I keep going? Help me think through the pros and cons of stopping or continuing. Yes. So, Michael, the way that you answered that question about knowing how to, when to quit and when to grit, I think that that really bolsters the, 
the robustness of your simple three-step framework because you can just keep going back into it and that will give you some clues like I'm imagining first of all you know you have you don't not traveling alone and you have this team of advisors that will help you see things that you're missing you know plus right. plus and minus but then I can also see how the exercise of capturing your false starts will give you a lens into the things that you have regretted in your life that you wish you had done differently, which could be, I wish I would have quit sooner, or I wish I yeah. would have kept going. So I, it's, it's brilliant. I, thank you for tying that all together. I think that's really helpful uh, for anybody that, that's going to start using this. Well, it's a, it, was a, it was a subtle question, so I'm really glad you asked that because we boil these things down to you know, quit or grit. So easily and it make it sound like it's a straightforward question and there's a sort of yeah. there's a morally right answer to that. Um, yeah. But sometimes you're like, you know what? I just needed to do this bad version of a thing. And so sometimes all that work comes back and it's kind of re redone or proves useful in a different context in a different way. Yeah. Sometimes it's just like, I just had to realize that that was a dead end. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, I get to celebrate that. And it's a yeah. truism that if you talk to any successful entrepreneur, they'll, they'll point to their seven failures they've had on their way to their one success. Same yeah. with this kind of idea of a worthy goal, which is like, there will be failure. That's actually part of the process. Yeah, that's great, Michael. And I, and I just love this idea of creating a world where people don't have to feel so guilty or ashamed for stopping something, for quitting something. And one of the, one, of the, right. one of the most valuable exercises I've recently learned about goal setting is, and, and you, you nailed it, like on smart goals, is that they're very much like you did it or you didn't. And there, right. there, there is certainly a time and a place where that's really helpful, but it can also be harmful. And where it's harmful is that if you don't quite reach the goal, you throw everything out into the waste paper basket where, hang on a sec, let's take that failed goal, tell us all your small wins, Tell us everything you learned about the world, about what you learned about yourself, all the skills that you acquired on, on, the, way, on, the, on the embarking of that goal that didn't quite meet the SMART objectives. So I think that's a really important part of goal setting that people have to start embracing. You know, the, the truth is in how to begin, there's almost a little bit of what magicians would call misdirection. Because we keep talking about the worthy goal and setting the worthy goal and thrilling, important and daunting. But remember where we started with all of this, Jeff, it was we unlock our greatness by working on the hard things. So it's not we unlock our greatness by achieving the goal. It's we unlock our greatness by working on the hard things. And it turns yeah. out the process is where the magic is. It's in doing the work that's where the magic is. And of course, you want to, you want to have some successes. That's why it's helpful to set the small goals as well. But it's like you, un you unlock your greatness by actually starting the journey and pushing through into the unknown and learning and trying and experimenting and failing and succeeding. And then you get to the worthy goal as a, almost as a bonus to all of that. Yeah, I can see that. And so, Michael, we spend, I think, a good portion of this conversation so far looking in the mirror. So how does this apply to our own life? Let's spend yeah. some time looking out the window. So how should a person or how could a person use this to help people they care about? And, I'm, and, I, and I think the lens I'm often looking through is, is more a manager with their teams because like, I, I yeah. think that this is such a poignant time for managers to learn some of these skills working in a more remote yeah. environment and a little bit maybe more 
disconnected than we're used to, at least, at least in proximity. How should managers or how could managers use this to their advantage? Well, you've got a couple of things going on. The first is, in some circumstances, I'm just going to be blunt about it, it's like this won't work at all because an organization may have a robust and non-negotiable way of this is how we tell you what you do in your job and in your role. And you're like, okay, <laughs> there's no point in bringing this in because nobody's interested and it breaks the system. Um, and, you know, we're, we're living through a moment now where the current conversations around quiet quitting and people going, you know what, I am, I'm just not, I'm just leaving my job because I'm not enjoying it and I'm not finding the meaning in there and the engagement that I'm looking for in a role. And I think one of the things that this offers up as an opportunity is to go, how do you create an increased amount of autonomy and self-sufficiency around the work people do in an organization? Now, if you're doing it just for yourself outside work, important can mean whatever it wants to you. It's just like, how do I give more to the world than I take? And whether that's serving your community or serving your family or contributing to your neighborhood, whatever it might be for you, that's great. In an organization, we've got a more restricted context because you have to set a goal that is in some way in service to the organization's strategy. Otherwise, you're, you're like, you're like <laughs> delighted you got these goals, but you're not actually helping us as a company or an organization. So you've got your, your context around what important is is uh, determined to, to a degree by what the strategy of your organization is. But, you know, so often in organizations, you're like, I'm not even sure why I'm doing this work. <laughs> I've lost the line of sight in the bigger picture that this serves. So I think if you're a manager or a leader, there's a way to be having a conversation with the people that you manage and you lead to say, knowing what we need to achieve here, how do I help you find work, a goal that is thrilling, important, and daunting so that you find meaning in the work that you do or as much meaning as you can, that you're, you find your learning edge so that you're continuing to grow and evolve in the role that you're in at the moment, and that we know that the work you're doing actually serves the organization, serves the team, serves the business unit, serves the organization in general. So you're not going, I'm, this is busy work. You're actually going, I'm doing something that matters to this organization. So wow. there's definitely a fit within organizations. It does rub into or, or bounce up against kind of other goal setting tools that people have. Because, you know, if people are like, I've got smart goals, I've got OKRs, I've got to-dos, I've got KIP, KPIs, you know, <laughs> do I have worthy goals as well? Or you're like, okay, how do we make these work together rather than feel like a, burdensome list of acronyms. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Now, uh, Michael, you mentioned uh, you mentioned some people that have, uh, like Elon Musk, that have uh, you know literally shaped and transformed the world. You think of Bill Gates, think of Steve Jobs, uh, some of those yeah. kinds of uh, of people. Do you think people that legitimately change the course of history set out to do so, or is that a byproduct of a smaller worthy goal? I, well, if I think back to all the conversations I've had with Elon, which is none, I've never talked to Elon, but um, I would say that I, I'm not sure. 
I think that's an interesting question. I think yeah. sometimes it, I think there it's often one it's like a Mobius strip, you know, kind of one thing leads into the other thing and leads back to the first thing. I think yeah. sometimes it is just uh, pursuing a particular ambition. You know, I think when Bill Gates, I'm guessing when he started Microsoft, he wasn't going to go, this is the software company that will change the world. But at a certain mm -hmm. point, he went, my goal is to have a computer on everybody's desk. And then when that stopped, became redundant, then, you know, that evolved and changed. So sometimes your ambition grows with you. It's mm -hmm. it's parallel to the the insight about when people say, just follow your passion. I'm like, I think I think that's a mostly terrible advice. I think Agreed. often your passion for something grows out of the work that you're doing. I, for me, becoming passionate about trying to unweird coaching through the coaching habit, if you told me that that's the main work of my life, like five years before it actually started, I'd be like, I don't think so. That doesn't sound good at all. <laughs> but it turns out that the work, I grew into the, the work and I found the excitement by doing the work. But then I think sometimes there is a way where you're like, I'm actually looking to shift something. There's some injustice and some wrong that I'm looking to right. And then that the, the worthy goal gets articulated as their best guess as a way of serving that injustice. So in other words, Jeff, I think sometimes it's bottom up and it evolves out of the yeah. work. Sometimes yeah. it's top down, which means it, it rises to, to, to right a wrong or to fix an injustice. Yeah, and, and, I, and it makes me come back again to the filter that you started this whole conversation off with was it's got to be thrilling, but it also has to make a contribution and be important, and, and it's got to be somewhat daunting. And, I, and, and the reason I think I asked the question, Michael, is there are times I, where we may all be guilty of setting a goal that may be littered with too much hubris. And... Uh, and, mm -hmm. and, and, and I do worry about that. So make sure it's thrilling and make sure it's going to have a difference, not just in your life, but hopefully in other people's lives too. Well, you know, my experience of working with people and facilitating them through the, the worthy goal process, when we come to that test that I was telling you about, which is like, give it a score out of seven against thrilling and then a score out of seven important and, and daunting. So you get a total score out of 21. For many people, the, the soft spot is around the important. It's thrilling for them. It's daunting, but they haven't quite worked out the bigger, the bigger picture, the bigger act of service that this goal can help with. Yeah. And there's just a lot of research that says when you're when you're working on something that has a, an external element to it, it's actually more motivating for you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I certainly feel that. So, Michael, this book came out in January of uh, of 2022. What's a story that you have heard from a reader that has really inspired you or, or maybe touched your heart? Well, I'm lucky enough that we have a community um, within mbs.works of people who are working on worthy goals. It's called The Conspiracy, and there's like 150 people all making progress on a worthy goal. So I've heard some really good stories. I tell you what, one that comes to mind for me is, is Michelle. Now, she um, lost a child to homelessness, and then he overdosed on, um, on drugs. And she made her worthy goal to, to, I would say, perhaps, I'm not quite sure her exact words, but it's broadly to say to, to celebrate and, and acknowledge his life. And, and 
she launched a, 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 a halfway house for people who are homeless and struggling with drugs in memory of her son. And she said to me that, you know, it's like this structure is what moved her so that her son's birthday, which had been, um, you know, a day of sadness for, for many years, became a day of celebration because they launched, they launched the homeless, the halfway house um, on his actual birthday. So that's pretty cool. <laughs> mm. Yeah, that's a that's a beautiful story, and what a what a quintessential example of a worthy goal. Uh, yeah, I'd, I'd I'd like to talk a little bit about you now, Michael, if uh, if, if we could now. Sure. Uh, so, you talk about yourself in such a fun loving way. You poke fun at yourself. You certainly have a lot. There's a lot of fallibility. <laughs> I've, I've got a lot of material here. There's a lot. Yes, there's a lot of material in terms of poking fun at myself. Well, and you and you refer to you refer to yourself often as like uh, as a lucky amateur, and and having to sort of cross that threshold to re realizing that you actually have incredible insights and stories that are literally changing the world and the community that you have created. And I, what I was really interested in, if you'd share and indulge me, is what was that process, or what has that process been like, like? crossing the threshold from calling yourself a lucky amateur to realizing that, boy, oh boy, like you are so much more than that. Well, I try and cultivate something called confident humility. Humility for me, it's not that kind of, you know, when people say I'm really humbled to receive this award, like, that doesn't feel like humbleness to me. That feels like almost the opposite. But humility for me, the metaphor that comes to mind is that I am grounded. I have my feet on the ground. And actually a connection in the word humility to the, the, the root word that actually is the word for ground. So there's a sense of, I've got a sense of who I am. And what that means is I've got a sense of what I'm good at and I've got a sense of where I'm flawed or where I'm not the stuff that I'm just not that good at. I've got a, I've got a pretty good accounting of who I am. And, um, and, you know, and I've spent 30 odd years, 35 years since I was 18 trying to figure that stuff out. <laughs> you know, I've, I've, I've read a lot of books and I've been on courses and I've spent time going, you know, who am I and who am I not? And then there's a confidence, which is like, I'm, I'm willing to give stuff a go. And I spend a fair amount of time mulling over what's at risk and coming to the conclusion that most of the time, not that much is at risk. And mostly it's some time or some money or my reputation. And all of these are pretty in the, in the bigger picture. All of these feel like not that consequential. So when you have a sense of who you are and the things you're good at and the things you're not good at, and when you're confident to say, look, it would be a shame not to try and make the most of the gifts you have. And then when you have a, a structure like the worthy goal structure, which is like be ambitious for yourself, try and make a difference to the world, try and make a difference, try and become the best version of who you are. Uh, it, it just allows me to, um, uh, 
try and give it a really good go. And also to know that in the big scheme of things, it, I, I'm just not that important. It doesn't matter that much. And, you know, when I say it doesn't matter that much, because like in a hundred years, nobody will know my name or remember my work. Um, in 200 years, definitely that's all gone. Um, when I think of that, I find a great deal of freedom in that. It's not kind of existential despair, which is like, oh, you know, I'll be forgotten in a hundred years time. I'm like, it almost doesn't matter. So that means give it your best shot and do the best work you can because, you know, I'm, I'm an atheist. So I'm like, this is it. This is one crack at this, this short blip of light in between darkness. Show up and just try and do the very best you can and be the, the bravest person you can be and use the talents you have as best you can and uh, i'm not even sure what answer what question i'm trying to answer now yeah i know i appreciate you sharing that and I, I i identify with that a lot there's there's like this relationship that we have with mortality that i think that gives us license to to act with uh, with with more courage uh, and, and timely, too, because I know NASA just tried to blow up an asteroid, you know, 17 million <laughs> miles away from the Earth. And so if, if, we right. needed, if we needed yet another reminder that we're only a speck of dust in this universe. Well, the, or the, James, the James Webb photographs from the new telescope out in space. It's just like, you know what? They, they're looking literally 300 million, billion, well, I can't even remember, 30, 30 billion years back in time. I'm like, this little life doesn't matter that much. No, for sure. And, and even, even just present day without all of that, people are so concerned with their own, uh, their own meanderings. Uh, they don't care too much about what we're doing at the end of the day. Uh, not to the degree we think That's they right. do. Yeah. And you, know, gotcha. you, you alluded to this already, but you, I mean, you've, you've literally sold well over a million books. The coaching habit itself has sold over a million copies. Millions yeah. more have consumed your content on podcasts, your TED Talk, articles, blogs, different online communities, your newsletter. We all have to overcome certain fears and insecurities as we grow up and sort of unwind some of those things and cross those courageous thresholds. Uh, as you have seen firsthand the impact that your work has had on people's lives, like what has that meant to you? You know, I, so most of it, I, so mostly I don't know what impact my work has. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm fine with that really, because I create work that I hope spreads in the world and it doesn't need to come through me to, to spread. So that's part of the plan, which is like, there's, I'm hoping there's a bunch of people who have heard me or read stuff I've written that, and it's made a difference that I will never hear about. But, you know, when I do hear stories of people for whom you know, the coaching habits made a difference or how to begins made a difference. Um, how do I feel about that? I, I, I feel, I feel delighted. <laughs> I got to say how to put it. I'm like, you know, it's the, I can't really control the, the outcome of the work that I do. You know, it either works or it doesn't work. It gets read or it doesn't get read. It lands or it doesn't land. So I actually spend most of my time just going, am I doing the best work I can and putting it out in a way that's the most generous way I can put it out in the world. And um, 
it means that I probably don't stop and celebrate quite enough. <laughs> and then the moments where I'm like, you know, but when I get a nice email or somebody writes a card or something like that, it's, it is, I share it with my family and I share it with my wife and like, and it's a, it's a pretty great moment. Michael Bungay Stanier, I want to thank you for uh, sharing all your insights and uh, your, the labor of love in your last book, How to Begin. Where, uh, where would you prefer people track you down? Well, if you're interested in organizational change and the coaching habit and the skills there, then Box of Crayons is the company I founded. Um, and I'd certainly love a conversation with you. But if you're more into individual growth and change and unlocking your greatness, um, my website is mbs.works. So mbs.works, and that's a good hub, and you'll find out all the stuff from there. That's terrific. Michael, thank you so much for the work that you do. And, and, and more than that, the person that you are and how you show up in the world. And uh, we, the world needs more uh, Michael Bungay Staniers. There's no doubt about that. <laughs> so it's been an absolute pleasure uh, to talk to you today. Thank you. I've really enjoyed the conversation too. And for everybody listening in, there's no better day than the present to start working on your own worthy goal. Until next time, be well, everyone. If you enjoyed this episode and found it helpful, don't forget to give us a five-star rating and subscribe to our YouTube channel or wherever your favorite podcasts are found. And if you're part of a leadership team and you know that your organization is capable of even better performance, please reach out to us at unleashresults.com for a conversation and learn more about how we might help unleash the potential of your team and organization.